ladies and gentlemen, and no other categories. If you're not a lady or a gentleman, get out now. We don't want you. I'm Lehman Pascal, and that was a joke about belonging, because this episode of the Integral Stages author series will explore the intriguingly titled book, Belonging Again, which stakes out an intellectually delicate position that opposes mere freedom from constraint, but equally opposes the naive advocates of constraint against freedom. In that sense, it would seem like a book destined to please absolutely no one, unless, of course, that no one is me. I had a great time reading this text and feel no remorse of conscience about asserting that it is an unquestionable good and that it would be immoral to think otherwise. That's why I'm happy to welcome the author, a fine fellow, a nuanced thinker, an ethically oriented family man, and a hyperkinetic incarnation of edgy, sincere thinking and character-based philosophical self-presentation. Yes, it's a key component of OG Rose, Daniel Garner. Hi, Daniel. <laughs> I'm Pascal. It is a pleasure, and you have an extraordinary rep reputation for introductions, as you should, my good man. Very well done. It is a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the opportunity and giving Belonging Again a read. I appreciate it very much. First things first, what is the best place for people to buy this book? Amazon, uh, because I'm boring and haven't set up my own WordPress where people can get it from my own account. So, you know, Amazon's a good way. You can also show up at the porch around 5.30 um, p.m. We're usually eating dinner then, and I have copies at the house. So either or works. Just chuck one out at them. Yeah, yeah. I just chuck one, actually. <laughs> if you wait in the driveway, you'll it'll be like a Frisbee. You just catch it. All right. So as far as I can tell, this book is an exploration uh, moving through several thematic lenses, each one connected with a particular theorist or cluster of theorists, of the problem of how to achieve a sense of belonging in contemporary civilization by seeking for the optimal balance between limiting forms and practices that release us from limitation, between the problem of too much arbitrary control and the problem of having too many options. Does that sound about right? Absolutely. Uh, the language we'll use is given and releases. That's going to be inspired by Philip Reef. Now, he talked about givens and constraints. I, I mean, um, releases and constraints. I actually think that got in the way of the understanding of his theory because it put too much emphasis on an intentional constraint of like a power structure, when really we need to think more of something like givens as in just axioms, sort of assumptions that you don't think about it, because the moment you think about them, you have to be existential about it. And once you're existential about it, they no longer function to help give you direction thoughtlessly. Now, of course, the danger of thoughtlessness is you can, well, fall into like the banality of evil of a Hannah Ardent, or you can be taken advantage of a power. So there's some sort of balance that's going on now. But then at the same time, there's this very important tension that the balance of givens and releases no longer works today because a given only works as a given if you don't know it's a given. Once you know that you could choose it or choose something different, it will not occur. So there has to be this understanding of how do we get back to some kind of constraint, but it not be the traditional way, which would be the kind of naive return to a, a, a structure. And really another way to look at it is Givens, um, Givens kind of blocked us from realizing what I would call the essential incompleteness of society in the same way that mathematics is essentially incomplete after Gödel. Um, actually, social orders themselves are essentially incomplete. But when you had Givens, you never faced it. But now we're facing the conflict of society, which is the impossibility of society to complete itself by its own terms. Uh, and in the same way that rationality, the conflict of mind, the first book of the truth and the rational one to argue that rationality cannot be its own grounding, or it turns out social orders cannot be their own grounding either. And that's pretty terrifying. But so what would it mean to do in the same way we have to ask, what does it mean to do mathematics after, say, Gödel? We have to ask, what does it mean to have social orders after the conflict of society, after the realization that social orders are ultimately grounded in a system of controls that once you see, they no longer work the same way? What does it mean to have a social order after that? 
you know, the question of their working is of interest to me, because every time you say givens, I wonder what takens might consist of. And, and I wonder whether we're correct that highly authority based, highly constrained, highly particularized situations um, were situations in which people actually took on board those givens or whether they actually sort of suffered a lack of belonging under those conditions. And the idea that it was working might not be an artifact of our nostalgia, an artifact of our desire to explore imaginary alternatives to modernity. Do we have any special reason to think that under conditions of traditional society, much like under conditions of cult-like living, that people aren't sort of secretly feeling constantly alienated and only claiming to feel a sense of belonging and a sense of being appropriate to their circumstance? That's an excellent question. So a few things. One, one of the whole reasons that we've un had the unveiling of the essential incompletion of society is precisely minorities that were outside of the circle that are not included in the history who don't get a voice. And if they don't have belonging, then it says, well, you just have to kind of enter. There's a, there's a part called the value circle, which says that everyone within the circle, say if you're um, Christianity, 1920s or something like that, if you were part of that, well, Christianity wasn't an option. It was just given. That's just what you're supposed to be. Of course, not everyone followed those given. So you created a circle to exclude those people. So they didn't have belonging. And the people within the circle had belonging in the sense that they had fittedness. But the issue is because it was thoughtless, it couldn't have meaning. And there's a, there's a tension between belonging and meaning, which are not necessarily the same thing. But for most of human history, they kind of more so aligned. Because say, for example, if you believe Christianity was true without thinking about it, or it was just something you absorbed, well, then you could say the universe was essentially meaningful and you could find your fittedness, your belonging within that, within that framework. Well, now, uh, even you have to choose, say, if you want to be Christian or emergentism or something like that, and then decide what it would exactly look like for you in your particularity to belong in that. And so really the development away from givens has been a development of justice. Uh, it's been a movement of actually saying, well, no, the people who had belonging, it was kind of a lower resolution belonging because it wasn't chosen. It was a kind of belonging in the sense you, you didn't feel existentially anxious or overwhelmed, but it was not a belonging that really Nietzsche is calling for in becoming children, which is you choose your own values. You say this is noble versus contemptible and you find fittedness in that and you belong in that and you take a real risk in that. And that's a new kind of high, higher resolution belonging, but it's quite a, quite a task. So so there's absolutely a strong argument to be made that the mechanisms of belonging and ergo meaning that were given for the majority of people throughout human history were not the deepest possible forms of meaning and belonging. But the challenge we now have is, is that possible at scale? Is that possible for an isolated number of individuals? What would it look like to have a society that say the, the book toward the end will start talking about things like Deleuzian individuals, absolute knowers, Nietzschean children, people who actually enjoy the state of not having a rigid belonging because they actually find more belonging and more possibility in this. The question then, of course, is sort of scale. But absolutely, there is a very real sense in which the belonging in the past was a kind of not owning belonging. It was a thoughtless belonging. But what would it mean to have a thoughtful belonging? The key to that, though, is sociologically speaking, that is a kind of paradox, though, because humans don't tend to feel belonging. It, it, funny enough, when we choose things like we can think of an Eric Fohm, Escape from Freedom, we tend to be very anxious. So it is very difficult for people to feel fittedness and belonging in something they choose, but that's going to have to be the challenge now. It's not impossible, but the question would be, I mean, there's plenty of people in the liminal web, for example, who are doing just that. The question becomes, what would that look like on a wider socioeconomic scale? And then what exactly is the work or wisdom that one has to do as a subject to be able to handle choosing one's own belonging? And, and that's, a, that's, quite, that's kind of uh, the, the great challenge, I think. 
This book is optimistic in the sense that it's proposing that there's a a richer, deeper, better form of belonging and meaning that's possible, but highly skeptical and highly interested in the feasibility of moving that beyond a few successful types of people who are able to pull that off in their own lives. I think that's very fair. And by skepticism, you know, there's a piece in there called the death of skepticism. Skepticism is not to be um, cynical or saying it's impossible. Skepticism is um, the prerequisite to agreeing or disagreeing with something. So I think the hope of book one as the explanation is to accurately frame the problem. Like what are differences, say, sociologically between meaning and belonging? Both of them matter. Both of them are equally important. If you have belonging without meaning, it's meaningless. But if you have meaning without belonging, it could be fragile. Also, societies have to navigate the real of deep moral disagreements. You know, obviously you can talk about abortion, you can talk about, you know, uh, gay marriage or different things, but we're going to have a lot. So for example, you're probably going to have an issue where people are using AI and deep fakes to make pornography of their neighbors and friends, right? Are you going to write, is that wrong? Is that not wrong? Who decides by what terms? Uh, We have to think about that. We have to be ready to make decisions about that. And that's kind of the real in the Lacanian sense of ethical disagreements. And basically most of the hardest problems in society have some sort of ethical taste to them. And I think it can be very easy for philosophers or thinkers to try to kind of avoid the real of ethics because that's when it, that's when you make, have to make hard decisions that are going to alienate people. Um, And, and yet at the same time, it won't do to simply go back to previous ways of managing the real of ethics through givens because those basically worked by oppression. Uh, those basically worked by keeping out the people that caused you to question your moral norms and things like that. So it's it's skeptical in the sense of it's never been done, but it's also not impossible. Uh, there's no reason to assume that it's impossible. Uh, I kind of, you can think of some of David Douche, um, Deutsch, I mean, I said Douche, wow, he would really appreciate that. Uh, Deutsch, you know, there's no reason to be inherently pessimistic about the future. There's no reason to assume there's kind of an inherent limitation to what human beings can know. Well, likewise, there's no reason to think that it's not possible to figure out a way to scale, say, the possibility of absolute knower, but we do have to acknowledge what the problem is and the difficulty of it, and it will ultimately come, I have a lot to do with socioeconomic um, the existential tensions of making a choice for yourself, and then scaling the conditions of that absolute knowing. When we're dealing with complementary forces like givens and releases, there's a temptation to stray into the territory sort of anciently populated with sexualized metaphors like yin-yang and masculine Mm. and feminine. But one of the things afforded by those metaphors is a sense of alternation or pulsation or a back and forth movement. So I guess my question is, when you think of getting the right balance between givens and releases, do you think of that as sort of just like nailing the proportion properly, or do you think of it in some sort of temporalized alternation between them? That's an excellent question. Um, I think basically a lot of it has to do, there are some situations where it's better to have 100% release and other situations where it's better to have 80% givens and 20% release. So it's not a 50-50, but then that sucks because that means you have to make judgments. That means you have to make assessments situation by situation by situation. You have to be a very active thinker. I think that one of the great problems now is that we are not basically as a society trained to make quality judgments or quality decisions. We don't, and Forrest Landry will emphasize decision and choice. And I think there's a lot of emphasis to that. Um, 
it would be another topic, but if the humanities were to, in my opinion, propose what they actually teach, say reading Hamlet, reading Shakespeare and different things, it's the ability to make quality decisions in ambiguous situations. So for example, uh, you're caught between Achilles, the ethics of Achilles, the ethics of Jesus and Hamlet, what should you do? What is the correct choice between two worlds, right? How do you make a quality decision in that in that system? Um, you can go through, we can go through all of it. Jane Austen, what does it look like to control it, like to uh, have a certain voting about the room that doesn't call an eggshell phenomenon, but also doesn't get you walked over passively, right? There are like humanities and the arts, in my opinion, are full of, full of lots and lots of ambiguous situations that require quality judgment and risk to rightly organize. We have generally thought the humanities are just kind of entertainment and nice, and we've not really thought about them in terms of quality decision. And we've actually outsourced decision-making to say business schools and things like that. That's all well and good, but there's also um, human, personal, relational decisions that have to be made all the time that we're not so well trained in. As a result, we might be lacking the wisdom because I think quality decision and wisdom are tied together. And I know Mr. Peter Lindbergh has recently had that piece of the store on the wisdom commons. That seems to be what is necessary for order to find the sort of live interaction between givens and releases. And also by givens now, you're, since the sociological givens no longer apply because you know you could have not been Christian, you know you could have been Hindu, you could have been something else. That's pluralism. That's a revelation. That's the um, opening up of the abyssal, really. Which for, for Hegel, the opening of the abyssal is the realization that you can frankly choose your absolute and participate in your absolute knowing. But of course, that's, you have to own it. And that's very difficult. Nietzsche describes, you know, taking a law and hanging it around your own neck as a kind of promise. You, uh, Mr. Matt Stanley was talking about promise in Nietzsche, which I think is quite lovely. And, but a promise to work in Nietzsche has to have the authority, like even if it's going to cost you, like even if it's going to suffer, you, you can't, in the promise go, well, this sucks. Actually, no, I take the promise back. Well, then it doesn't work. Like there's a deep, deep commitment that you know you arbitrarily chose and yet you treat like a kind of very powerful law over your life. That seems to be something like that is what's needed for belonging. Something that you choose that then actually can cost you. And then when it starts to cost you, you don't give it up. You actually hold to it. That and then actually then though having the quality judgment to judge how you would apply your promise if you give me that language in a given situation around people that disagree and then release people from your promise. Well, that's going to be quality of judgment. So I would say I would put the emphasis because I think very often when we're dealing with meta language, you know, different language games, different ways of doing it, there's a kind of emphasis question, emphasis debate and so on. It's not that there isn't a balance, but there's a question of does the word balance capture um, like I think you were getting at, does balance capture what's going on here? In a sense, it does. But really, it's a, the ability to move in a kind of quality of judgment from situation of situation that then creates a thread between those situations so they're not fragmented of the quality judgment relative to the promises and releases. So we have to get very good at quality judgment. But we don't tend to, as human beings, like judgment and choices because it's scary, because then we could be wrong and the people around us could disagree and we might make mistakes. So there's a lot of, you know, Mr. Ebert will say that the meaning of life is courage. I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of truth to the idea that courage becomes very important in this current um, current paradigm. Yeah, I would agree that quality judgment is essential and that when very often when we think about the situation of the contemporary person, we imagine people confronted by a multitude of narrative and lifestyle options, but we often imagine them as passive, as sort of inert and undecided between ideas that have not yet seduced them or bound them in some way. But the more important question seems to be the active role, the learned capacity and skill set of being a better decider. 
Yes. So from from that angle, I mean, what do you think of as the key attitude, the key practices necessary to help a person get better at weighing and selecting between plausible options and afterward being viscerally content with whatever decision they made? Oh, Mr. Lemon Pascal, that is a great question. Uh, so right on, my friend. So first off, um, I think that is an excellent framing. I think the quality of decision making is very, very good. So the first thing is the conflict of mind had to argue that we can't outsource decision making to pure rationality. That's the temptation. We say, well, what is rational? Well, then in a way that sounds like you're making a decision, but you're actually kind of outsourcing it to logic or rationality. Now, I use those terms interchangeably. I know some philosophers make distinctions between rational reason and logic. I'm not a huge fan of those because it kind of acts like we can avoid existential choice by making enough philosophical distinctions. Uh, and I'm, I'm not so sure about that. So the first thing that has to be done is to show that rationality cannot be its own grounding. And so at the end of the day, the heuristic of the decision making will have to be something non-rational, not irrational, but something non-rational. Um, so for example, to explain this, if I think it's going to rain today, it becomes rational to bring an umbrella. Let's say it doesn't rain. Does that mean I was irrational? No, I was rational to what I thought was true. It just turns out I was wrong. But the moment I experienced the fact that it's not raining, I'm tempted to think I was irrational as opposed to I made a rational decision relative to what I believe was true that turned out not to be true. So, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the title of the trilogy is the true isn't the rational. So we have to make a distinction between the true and the rational. So the first thing we have to realize is that we cannot outsource our decision-making merely to logic or rationality, as we might be tempted to do, especially with AI. And I know Mr. Bervecchia has been warning us that AI makes us think we know that's intelligence, that's what it is. And we then begin framing ourselves in the image and likeness of that intelligence, which then horrible enough makes it seem like it is human intelligence, because then we just start acting like it. And it's like Kierkegaard's despair, where when you're in true despair, you don't even know you're in despair, right? So there's a horror there. So one is to hold to the non-rational. The second thing would be, what is the basis of one's non-rationality? Is it emotion? Is it community? Is it experience? Is it spiritual? So now you have to begin exploring all those different things. And then also take in mind that in one situation, maybe a spiritual consideration is primary, where in another, it might be a risk consideration is primary. So the rationalist communities have emphasized mental models. You can get into like Munger and all these different things. And that seems to have a lot of truth to it. But unfortunately, in my opinion, a lot of the mental models actually suggest the possibility of escaping non-rational choice in favor of pure rational choice. Uh, that's not going to be the case. So the first thing is you have to realize that whatever you do, there's going to be a risk. And that means it's going to feel wrong. This is the key. Like we actually can come to associate feeling like I'm doing something wrong with meaning I'm making a wrong decision that actually doesn't follow. Uh, you actually could be making the decision you need to make precisely because you're nervous to make it. And the nervousness would not be an indication that you're making the wrong thing. In fact, it could mean you're making a real decision where you're facing your fear and maybe being made perfect in love is like first John will talk about or something like that. Right. So you one, there has to be courage involved, learning how to be courageous. Two, being able to assess not merely things, but situations. Leibniz will emphasize, as we talked about at the uh, Science of Logic, um, that there really aren't so much things in the world, but situations. Like the bookcase over there isn't so much a thing as it is a situation that is in relation to everything else in the room that is a situation. So we have to think um, situationally, not in terms of things. And Mr. Morley on his book on Leibniz is magnificent on this, on geometrical proofs and different things. Um, we also have to think in terms that I, as an agent, am never making decisions that are just mine. Whatever choices I make changes the quality of the world. So individual choice is always world choice. I was talking with Tom Leone about that. So we have to think in those terms. So 
Um, the list keeps going, uh, I, but I think what you're getting at is very, very good. But basically, it requires an entirely new epistemology and also, which, you know, that's not a tall order or anything, uh, which I think gets into the structure of wisdom that Mr. Lindbergh is talking about. And then, you know, the theory underground, Dave was talking about intellectual milieu and learning all these different skills. Um, and it also will require a, a kind of subject can handle the choices, ergo and onto epistemology, which would be a, a Hegelian emphasize. Because basically, and then I'll give it back to you, once you realize you need a different kind of choice to address the problem of belonging and belong again, as opposed to say belong like you did, then that actually trickles down into an entirely new understanding of what the subject is. So then we have all these new metaphysics, emergentism, the gentleman at footnotes to Plato does a lot on German idealism that's quite lovely. Um, like all of this then speaks to a changing of the quality and nature of choice itself, because ontology always informs epistemology and epistemology always informs ontology. So it all comes together. But the key, the final point is it does come down to choice. Like if you have the greatest sort of model, the most meaningful model in the world, you have a great idea of how to be have belonging, but then you don't make a choice to actually live according to it and bind yourself up like a Nietzschean promise, it will not matter. And the choice is where then you have to have the work of the subject to face the fear and to actually make that choice. There is a great phrase invoked in this book, which is tragic sociology. And for people who haven't read this, how would you define tragic sociology? <laughs> That's lovely. I thank you, sir. Uh, in my opinion, it's the idea that Martha Noomsburg has a lovely book of the fragility of goodness, I highly suggest. And she says one of the reasons we really don't understand, say, Greek literature or Sophocles, et cetera, so forth, is because we don't know what a tragedy is. Um, we tend to think a tragedy is a catastrophe when a tragedy is a trade off of competing goods. Like, do you know, if we look at um, Electra, do you serve the gods or do you serve your family? You cannot do both. You have to choose one or the other. And for Mr. Newsbaum, Basically, democracy was doomed because art stopped teaching tragedy. Therefore, people got the impression that democracy was problems and solutions as opposed to managing trade-offs. You want freedom or you want privacy? Choose. Oh, well, that's pretty terrifying. Well, right here, tragedy helps you realize that at the end of the day, it becomes a choice, like we were just saying, relative to situations where it is not self-evident what is the better trade-off, right? And so when sociology, say, presents itself as, oh, this is what's wrong with the society and here are the solutions for dealing with that, like, so, for example, a lot of sociology has rightly identified how social orders rather, let's take Foucault, that's a, that's a well-known example, norms oppress. Whatever is norms oppresses people who are not norms. And the people who are, say, the minorities, they want to have the belonging that everyone else has. The issue is what sometimes I think sociology has missed from like a burger or a hunter or a reef is that the feeling of belonging that people can want is precisely a product of the norm that oppresses. So if you remove the norm to make people feel belonging, then what actually happens is there's an explosion of existential anxiety that then people can turn to totalitarianism uh, to correct our ideology. Everyone is tempted by totalizing systems that deal with that anxiety. Right. So if you remove the norms, as justice would necessarily have you do, you then have to say, OK, since reality is not problems and solutions, but trade offs, how do we deal with this new situation so that isn't um, finding its feeling of home through oppressing, but actually can expand the conditions of home? Well, that's what you're getting into choice for. You know, we talked about Nietzsche, all these other things, but we haven't thought we needed to do that because we thought of social organization in terms of problems and solutions. You remove the problem, then everything will take care of itself. No, 
uh, you remove the problem, you then have new problems uh, that then you have to take care of. And these new problems are what we should be facing because the way we solved them in the past was indeed oppressive, contributed to injustice against minorities and the banality of evil of, a, of, a, of Hannah Arden and, and Eichmann. Um, so by talking about project sociology, which is to think about communities, social orders in terms of competing trade-offs, and then negation, sublation in a Hegelian sense, then I think we can see why sociology is actually an invaluable field. There's a lot of people now that don't really understand that it's invaluable. They kind of think that, oh, if that's something you're interested in, that's great. But really, um, but really it's invaluable. So sociology would be the study of society through a tragic lens of a trade-off of competing goods. And I have no idea how to use these cameras. So thank you, Mr. Lehman Pascal. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about the tragic trade-offs between better regulations, which can also be gamed, and more empowered regulators who might turn out to be the wrong regulators. Yes. And it, it's been leading me to think about uh, the belonging situation in a certain way, because let's say we have a civilizational problem of, of incoherence or inconsistency among many narrative fragments, many different meaning-making options, and this may be about to get way worse with plausibility generating artificial intelligences. And this may directly contribute to the inadequate sense of belonging and associated issues like whether people are breeding or not. So one idea is to uh, set up some kind of new norm, some kind of new narrative that can cut through this and give people back some kind of unifying constraint. But another option is to double down on the training and social promotion of maybe we might say shamanic characters who are able to thrive under conditions of ambiguity and who have the skill set to help us through adaptation and ritual production and the regeneration of the sacred. So is it the what that's missing or is it the who that's missing right now? That's a fat, that's a fantastic question. Um, so when we look back on religions, and I'll just speak of Christianity, not to say that that is religion, but just as an example, it's there's always this emphasis on, okay, you believe that Jesus is the son of God. Well, now you have to go be like Christ. And you go to Paul and it's like, what does it look like to have a community of Christians with the, uh, with the pagans who, if you eat that bread up there, it's going to look like you worship their God. But then if you don't eat the bread, aren't you saying that their pagan God is real? So aren't you actually, so what, how do you navigate that situation? So Paul's like, well, don't eat it when the pagans are around, but you can eat it when they're not around because it doesn't really matter, right? So this kind of navigation of situations. So worldview, um, metaphysics, if you just grant me that as a general phrase, although I know technically that can mean the uh, study of categories. Um, so if we're talking like your metaphysics would lead you to think about how you deal with the situation, like what is the appropriate practice? The opening essay, The Conflict of Mind, is that truth organizes values. What you believe is true then decides what is a value to you. If you think that someone is lying to you, then the value is for them to tell you that they're lying but let's say they're not lying to you well then actually they would lie to you in the act of unveiling to you know of doing the thing that you you think they need to do so truth is always a necessary piece of the pie because you cannot even organize appropriate action unless you have an idea of truth and if you've had a hundred years of reductionism as i know people like wolfgang smith um with vertical causation obviously verbeke henriquez etc are fighting well if you have a reductionist even then that can be um that can lead you to not being able to organize values in an appropriate way uh because you may just say what's the point or you may organize what's valuable is to reduce things even more if you decide that reductionism is deepest truth then the valuable thing to do is to make things into further fragments and parts oh well that's a problem so having a rigorous defense of um of a worldview that would not have you lead into those problems would be very valuable now there's a question here though 
Because when we talk about is the primary problem today, people don't have a worldview that fits the human, or is it that people do not have a way of daily life that makes them feel like um, they're human, where they're not a gear and a machine? I think at this point, you have to enter in a kind of poly theory. I like to talk about mono theory, which is a theory of everything that tends to be very problematic, but it's human nature to create mono theories. We have to create poly theories. So for example, the average person on planet Earth, as last time I looked, still believes in God, right? So they don't, but they may look at science and look at like reductionism, but they still believe the universe is meaningful, right? And yet we have a mental health crisis. Well, that's weird. What's going on there? Well, they must be in an economic condition that doesn't allow them to translate that meaningful worldview into a way of life that gives them belonging or meaning. But then you have a lot of college kids, maybe they're educated, who don't necessarily believe in traditional religions, who are looking for a understanding of the universe that is meaningful. Well, here we go, vertical causation, emergentism, and something. So you're serving those people, but then those people are looking for practices. So this is what becomes very interesting. I do think it is probably the case if um, to, to, to not say it's both, because that's always the temptation in these conversations, because then you're, you're not taking any risk. Um, I would say it's probably more so on the side of practices in daily life, um, like the way that people do work the way that they manage sexual relations, the dating world, um, the uh, the feeling of not belonging. Like, I think a lot of people actually um, are dealing with exhaustion, maybe even more than nihilism. I'm not saying that nihilism is not a part of it, but a lot of people are just exhausted by the rat race or they're exhausted by thinking through the who they should vote for, who they should not vote for. Now, you could argue that if nihilism is the case, then, then people lack a resource to overcoming that exhaustion. So this isn't an either or thing. But I think a lot of people are not, they don't have the practices to deal with the existential anxiety or the decision making capacities to deal with the existential anxiety inherent to pluralism and globalism. So they're withdrawing into tribes, conspiracies, isolationism. I think Japan is a wonderful case study of what occurs when you have westernization without religion, um, because they westernize very quickly without the religious structures. You know, Daniel Zaruba will talk about that and different things. However, so I do think the emphasis is on decision. I'll give it back to you. But I don't want to say that worldview doesn't matter at all. I hope that is clear. But I do think perhaps um, the, 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 the task now from the liminal web might be starting to move more into what does it look like to do economics? What does it look like to do sexual relations? What does it look like to do marriage, child rearing and different things? But that, but that's also a bias I have, but that's an impression I also have. Yeah, I'm in a similar situation, which is I sense us starting to move in that direction, but I also recognize that I have a bias in making that interpretation of how we're moving at the moment. It's a very difficult situation. There's like a reciprocal structure here. Like, on the one hand, how much of the meaning crisis would solve itself if we had more biomaterial security, cognitive ease, and control relative to the physical and economic systems in which we're embedded? But on the other hand, how much more meaning do we need in order to be able to mobilize to make any adjustments to our material and social situation? That's excellent. And it's very clear. So, for example, I remember like Daniel Pink's drive talking about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, maybe back 2007. Obviously, we have, Victor, you know, Victor Frankl, existential, uh, the existential psychoanalysis work that he will do in different things. So there is absolutely a problem of meaning because again if people have belonging maybe they have economic security maybe they have um they you know they have a, a structure they have a community but it's meaningless to them or they can't connect with it well then the belonging is fragile it's the, you have belonging but it's meaningless but likewise if you have meaning maybe you have these liminal web spaces 
well, you don't have the, you have to go to a nine to five to have the money to be here. So there's the, the meaning is fragile. It's contingent upon a, like having the time to do it. And maybe you're just exhausted. Right. So there's a tension here between those two, um, to use my language and people use different languages. Um, I, I think too, with that, it does come to the question of, so if we look at Freud and the psycho, Freud's in Dirk, um, in Weber, I'm sorry, in his book, um, no, Durkheim, I'm sorry, suicide, I believe. Um, both of them kind of talked about how psychoanalysis was something you had to worry about in first world nations. You didn't really have to worry about psychoanalysis in third or second world nations because the very external demands of the world would drive you to have purpose. Like you don't have water, well, you need to go get water. You did that, you had a goal, great, everyone's happy, right? But when you are comfortable and the external world doesn't give you purpose so much, and you almost could make a distinction between meaning and purpose, although one would have to flesh that out. Purpose is a goal given to you externally. Maybe meaning is a goal given to yourself or a fittedness internally. I'd have to think about that. I'm just talking live. Uh, but a first world nation that has meaning and comfort, comfort precisely makes the problem of meaning more pronounced. And for Freud, Lacan, and all these different people, meaning must, meaning's only possible if it ultimately comes to terms with the real. It has to, it has to escape the imaginary and the symbolic registers. Not because the real cannot be managed, tragically, not solved, managed, but because if it doesn't, if meaning doesn't move to taking care and learning how to deal with the real, then it's very fragile. It's only a matter of time before the power grid goes off. You know, all of us are pretty nice until we lose electricity for three days. All of us are pretty nice when we first uh, meet the girl we're going to marry or the guy we're going to marry or whoever. And then 10 years in, we're, we it turns out we're really easily irritable, actually. Um, that's when the real starts coming in. And it starts unveiling that your meaning didn't actually move into the realm of taking the real seriously. So there's almost a way in which the balance between these things may be something like a psychoanalytical wisdom or a real wisdom because the, and then i'll give it back to you what i'm interested in like in the past wisdom if we use that term that i know zizek uh harasses but there's an emphasis in the liminal web space on wisdom that i think is absolutely correct in the past wisdom tended to be operating within givens like the social order had shared paradigm it wasn't so much within a kind of existential flux. I'm not saying there were no trade routes. Obviously, there were pluralism in like economics and trade routes and different things. And I'm not saying, but the, the average person was not so integrated in pluralism. And also when pluralism was on the trade routes, you could manage the disagreement between worldview with the economic good. Oh, you're a Hindu, I'm a Christian. Do you want the salt or not? The salt could re reduce, in a sense, some of the existential tension. Now we have difference interacting that doesn't have something outside of itself to kind of translate the difference or to help the difference not be so um, anxiety producing. Well, what does it look like to have wisdom in that situation? What does it look like to have wisdom in navigating the real? And this is where it's like, how do we do meaning in a manner that's real meaning how do we do belonging that's actually real belonging as opposed to belonging that requires the oppressive norms and givens of a Foucault or something like that? And how do we do wisdom that is actually taking seriously moral differences, not merely worldview differences, like differences on the realm of should you be allowed to use AI to make pornography or not? Because the like moral issues tend to be the real of like philosophers. They're the things that kind of like philosophers don't want to tell you if abortion is right or wrong, because that's the real coming through. That's when you have to make the stakes. But that but basically also as just a note, I think if the liminal web doesn't develop the wisdom to deal with moral differences, then it's only a matter of time before the real of moral disagreement shatters it. That's what tends to shatter everything. That's what shattered nations, right? Like what, what's going on in America? It's not like you don't have diversity in America, different worldviews. Now, of course, it's there's privilege and different power structures, 
But generally, um, there's diversity. The issue is the moral disagreements, right? Those are the reels that shatter everything and break through. So what would it look like to have a real wisdom, a wisdom that is aware of that reality coming through and then us having the um, quality of decision-making to handle it? So a way I've thought about the tension you're describing is real decision. Uh, you know, we real wisdom with kind of alluding to Lacan, but also alluding to the wisdom traditions that seem really important here and trying to find how to navigate both of those. The, um, the question of how the moral is situated relative to the philosophical is fascinating to me because one of my favorite passages in Nietzsche is the beginning of the section in Beyond Good and Evil where he's going to start to talk about the feminine. Mm. And he does this elaborate introduction where he says, I've been examining philosophers and I'm one of them. And we always say that we're dealing with objective reality, but deep down underneath, there's a set of bedrock assumptions that we can never get away from. And now that I've said the most embarrassing possible thing about a philosopher, which is me, perhaps I'll be allowed to also say some embarrassing things about women. That's his like segue into the discussion. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yes. Um, you know, one of the sections I really enjoyed in the book was the critiques of the adequacy of realism to handle these problems. And I'm curious about how you think about the difference between sort of two types of characters who would both assert that the trance of believability has failed and that realism might be the solution. So one character is uh, a person whose personal trance of believability has ruptured. They've lost the sense of the persuasiveness of what they're embedded in, and they seek instead in an ultimately failing manner for a realism to supplement that. But the other character has a bit of a savior complex. They're still totally persuaded by their own trance, and they consider it to be the very essence of realism. They can't even see a difference between the two, but they assert that all trances of believability in the world have failed and need to be corrected with a realism, which is really just their trance of believability, which they wish to impose on everyone else. How do we disentangle these two? That's an excellent question. Um, you mentioned Nietzsche. I think there is always, it, it's so important that book five of the gay science, everyone's like, oh, he's saying we can't get our values from religion. Well, he proceeds to say in book five, you can't get it from pragmatism. You can't get it from science. You can't get it from nationalism. You know, I, I talk about in the paper, as you know, bestocentrism. We can't, there's always going to be some level of bestowing from something external from us, but we don't realize how much of what we think and what we believe is bestowed to us um, by something external. And it's not just religion. It's, you know, he critiques science. He critiques like pragmatism. A lot of people say, oh, I did that because it's practical. Well, you're saying that you didn't choose to do it by your own values. You did it because it was practical in the world. So there's a kind of existential escape going on there. And absolutely, people use real and being realistic or kind of to say, oh, then I'm, I'm, it's not me. I'm just doing what's realistic. I'm just doing what's actually there. But of course, that's secretly a kind of trance because you're actually in a trance of relative where you don't even think about it of what is real. So the thing about, you know, Mr. James Wood, when he talks about um, David Foster Wallace, as this, there's, there's too many details too quickly and it breaks, the hyper-realism breaks the, um, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the trance of believability. It's a very useful phrase because when, when uh, Eichmann is saying, I was just following orders, then he's basically saying I was in a trance of the believability of the Nazi party, right? There's a certain trance of believability. Now, the funny thing is the, the threat of trances of believability is they're oppressive. And also, I don't realize I'm in a trance. I don't realize that my givens are choices, that ultimately they're arbitrary, that there is no fundamental grounding of it. I'm in a trance where I don't think about it. Because the moment I think about it, they break. And Wittgenstein has that lovely line, 
where he says, restoring a tradition, and in this context, we can think of a given, so it's like trying to repair a spider web with your bare hands. Uh, it's basically not possible, right? But that's precisely what can free people. So there is something interesting now that when we talk about how do we move if we're, because all of this has to be in, you know, as, a, as someone who likes Hegel, all of this is a negation sublation. So book one is a kind of negation, all right? We're negating the trans of believability. We're negating givens. We're negating the structures of the dialectic of givens and releases. Now, what it would it look like to have a speculative knowing of whatever comes after that, right? Because in Hegel, dialectical thinking is not the end game. It's the speculative reasoning that then follows from the dialectic, where Hegel goes, oh, there's a dialectic between these two that are always passing over to one another. Wow, that's weird. Why do they pass over to one another? What's the nature of reality to make there be a dialectic? And then what would it look like once you negate them as dialectical into a sublation? What's the new form? It would seem that the new trans believability, there are people talking about magic, you know, Mr. Sweeney at Parallax, they're going to be talking about this emphasis on magic. There's going to be this idea of flow states, this idea of sort of a collective consciousness. People are talking about dialogos. All of those seems to be suggesting practices that can create different kinds of trances, different kinds of way to believing. And also, too, the writer who gets up every single day and does their work is kind of in a trance of their project. If you're in a promise, you're in the trance of that. So what does it mean? Well, to the point, basically what we have to do is choose our trances, which that's scary. Like you're choosing, you know, something that you're vulnerable in. What if you're trance to do something crazy? What if you're trance to devote your life to something wrong or that's immoral? So we have to own, like in seeing the mechanism of the trance of believability, then we have to own the fact that there's a trance of believability and then choose what trance we're going to put ourselves in. Well, that's terrifying. But basically that's what's going to have to occur where instead it's not like a trance of just kind of being lost in it and not realizing it, it's, it's a kind of tro chosen chance uh, or something like that. Um, so I'm going to turn that camera off because I really, really like how it just buzzes every five seconds. So here we go. Now it won't blur. See, but this is also, you see, the intentional reason of the blurring camera is to break the trans of believability. So people choose if they want to keep watching or not because they're irritated by the offset of the blurred camera. And it's an opportunity for the meaning to be the message. So I'm glad we could provide that today where people can choose their trans of believability as opposed to be lost in it. So, you know, I'm glad we could I'm, do that. I'm very happy that it's all going according to plan. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely uh yeah the things we were just saying are are one of the things that have been on my mind here because i listened to a lot of this book as an audio file while i was walking to and from the psychedelic science conference in denver and one of the interesting things at that conference was a set of studies on how this particular class of plant medicines or molecules re-stimulate types of social oxytocin mediated learning and the relational mm. reshaping of worldviews and that this is typically present in juvenile mammals and minimized in adult mammals. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about how you think of the role of altered states, regardless of their source, in terms of allowing human brains the physical affordance to adaptively update their sense of reality so that they have a richer engagement in, in the world building and faith generating options that are available to us now. Well, I think I think it's an excellent question. I'll talk a bit about alterology, which is alter altered states of being in different things. Now, like, for example, that includes religion, because if you say believe that God exists, then the universe is altered. It's a different kind of being. If you've had a psychedelic experience then the universe is a place where psychedelic experiences are possible. So there are particular choices and actions that alter the horizon of being. 
like as a whole, right? Like it's not the case that if you choose, say, to be a Christian, you're just you're making a choice that changes the quality of everything in the universe, right? And thus changing what the universe is and what's possible in the universe. Likewise, with psychedelics, suddenly you realize, oh, wait, maybe things don't exist as much as I thought, or maybe there's some sort of multidimensional possibility going on. Well, that changes the quality of everything. And if we go back to kind of Leibniz, as Mr. Morley emphasizes, if we never think things, only situations, then what are the choices that changes the situation that we are in? I think considering these alterologies becomes utterly, utterly paramount because if indeed the human subjectivity has operated through um, problematic dialectics like givens and releases and has created a subjectivity that operates according to that problematic dialectic, then if we're not going to do that anymore, as we shouldn't because they create oppression, then altered subjectivities, alterologies is going to become uh, utterly paramount. Um, and then just the question becomes, how does one do it? What does it look like? Um, and I mean, basically, too, like some people are probably going to find psychedelics is useful. Other people will not. But everyone does seem to have to. Let's put it like this way. There has to be a lot of thinking about alterological practices, like ways to introduce people to alternative forms of subjective experience, which, you know, um, you can go back to a William Ong or a Neil Postman or Marshall McLuhan. Digital, uh, digital information always changes the way we experience the world, like William Ong argues that it was impossible to do the scientific treatise until publishing uh, because you, you couldn't write down the systematic formula you could memorize, but to actually do like the scientific treatise required publication. And then we actually literally for William Ong, the way we thought about the world changed because of the introduction of uh, digital media. And then obviously Marshall McLuhan is better as that. Well, what are other practices or technologies that can change our very conscious experience? Obviously psychedelics is an example of this, but maybe there are more. Maybe there are other things uh, that need to be explored. So I think the question of altered states of consciousness. And then let me put it this way. I do think there is a danger of seeking episodes of altered states of consciousness as opposed to a life of altered consciousness, if I would do a little play on words there, where precisely a danger of psychedelics can be that it's so wild or interesting or opens you up that it's all you want to do, right? Now, that would be like a Soma Brave New World, and that would not be what anyone in the psychedelic community is encouraging people to do, but there becomes a temptation in that to then avoid the real of, say, uh, everyday life, people, relationships, or things, and so on, and use the altered state of uh, consciousness as a episode to avoid those different things. So the trick will be having people navigating and curating those spaces to make sure that the altered states of consciousness are being used to involve to inform an altered state of daily uh, altered life as opposed to episodes to escape the real uh, of everyday life. And that gets into, I guess, uh, Dr. Hughes was talking about metaphysics and uh, mysticism using like how to use conceptual mediation for psychedelics and different things. He had he had a presentation at the Science of Logic with Philosophy Portal as well. And I think I think that's really important. But that would be that would require skills and decisions and people to curate that movement. I mean, that, you know, religion had mysticism, mystical experience. You could think of a Simone Weil or different things. And the church failed to provide ways to turn to integrate the mysticism into the structure. So they became oppressive or they ignored the structure and they were pure mysticism. Well, then it was it didn't get integrated into the real of everyday life. So I, I think they play a big role. And the question is doing both of those. Yeah, that's a very pertinent concern in the integral theory community as well, which is what role does spiritual bypassing play in preventing states from becoming stages of development and inhabitation mm. of the world? Yeah, another curiosity that came up for me reading this book was 
Well, when I was a kid, I used to play this game where like you can't fold a piece of paper in half more than seven times, like the accumulating effects of the mass and the imperfections inhibit the reiteration after a certain number of steps. And I was thinking about that when the book explores the notion of ultimate negation connected with the infinite regress of the cynical or ironic stance. Like I can distrust the world. I can distrust my distrust. I can distrust whether I even believe that. It seems like it proceeds forever, but does it? Is it possible that we can actually only go a couple of steps down that path before it becomes qualitatively a different phenomenon? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I definitely think for Kierkegaard, where he's playing off Hegel with the infinite absolute negation, with the notion that you can always ironize about irony, 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 irony. Like, and I can always doubt, you know, Descartes found out radical doubt. Well, that's exactly the problem. And actually, I think you can doubt beyond, I think, therefore I am. Uh, there's always kind of new rooms for doubt. I do think there is a difference between doubt in service of determining something affirmative and then doubt that ends up avoiding a decision. And that's kind of what Kierkegaard is emphasizing. Since you can always use irony to distance yourself, there's a difference between using irony to distance yourself so you can see it better. Like, you know, if you're too close to it, it's funny, like C.S. Lewis talks about when it comes to mountains, to really see the mountains, you can't be too close, but you also can't be too far away. There's like an optimal location for experiencing uh, the mountains. The same goes with art generally. If you're too close to the Mona Lisa, that's a problem. But if you're too far away, that's a problematic. So you need mechanism, you require mechanisms of distancing to find the right location to observe something or to honor something or so. So irony can be extremely good in that distancing, but because there is no necessary limit to how often and how long you use this uh, irony, you can distance yourself away. So there is a point where irony ceases to be in service of, say, the true, beautiful, and good, if you want to throw in those terms or something, or it ceases to be in service of finding the op optimal distance from something to rightly assess it, and it becomes a mechanism of escape. And I think that is what's being suggested, because there's a difference between, say, the irony of a Harold Bloom, who argues that so much of literature is about the art of irony or the taking seriously that irony seems to be part of the human condition, and then a form of irony that is escape. And the way I would put it is, for me, literary irony is when you do act to get Z and X is why you don't get Z. Irony is precisely the doing something to get something and the thing you did to get the something is why you do not get it. And there is something about the human condition that actually is very ironic. We tend to be very prone to choosing means to, to receive ends that are the very reason we don't receive ends. And if you know that and you use that mental model of irony to distance yourself from your wants and desires to really examine them if you're going to get to the end or not, that's quite good. But then there's a form of irony that is basically just a form of cynicism or dismissal, which is when you no longer use irony to make a choice, but use irony to avoid choice. And that's the kind of infinite absolute negation that we are at risk of without givens. Because without givens, then the only choice is to choose a kind of Nietzschean promise. And that's when the temptation is just to ironize forever and to escape. So there absolutely is a point where irony takes on a different quality, for example. Oh, I, I think it's true both as a logical observation and as a moral consideration that we can't function merely in the negative mode. We can't be merely critics. We also need something positive to be in favor of. But I wonder whether the way to get that is through balancing critique with a positive vision or whether the problem is actually that critique and negation are usually not completed processes, not followed through to the point where they convert back into the positive. 
Like, do we need to limit the amount of critical deconstruction relative to reconstruction? Or do we need to bring more intentionality, more intensity, and more multiple aspects of ourselves to bear on completing the deconstruction so it naturally moves into a reconstructive mode the way that we need to allow grief to fully move through us to become a new appetite for living? I think that's an excellent question. I think, I think first off, I say, I think it is situational to some degree. It depends on the thing that's being discussed, et cetera, so forth. But what I would say is what you're saying makes me think of uh, David Hume, who is a big emphasis in the conflict of mind and deconstructing ASA. And I think uh, David Hume is, it's very unfortunate that he is seen as merely an empiricist, someone who is saying that reality is just empirical phenomenon, et cetera, so forth. For David Hume, um, a way to think about it is the philosophical journey. And everyone has to go on the philosophical journey or, or you're in danger. And so the, so you start off in common life, you're born, you don't question anything. That's the thoughtless givens. You just are. But then for David Hume, if you stay there, one, you could end up, uh, you know, a Nazi or something, or you're also vulnerable. If some, you know, politician comes along and gives you a new vision, you have no way to defend yourself because you don't have philosophy. Like for David Hume, philosophy is primarily, there's two things, and I'll get to this. It's a, a self-defense mechanism and a decision maker, the way you make decisions. But if you, but this is the key. If you don't make the decision, then you have a problem. So, for David Hume, you then say, go off to the ivory tower or something. You have to go on a journey. It doesn't have to be to college, but it has to be on a journey away from common life. And that's where you start to get a broader view of the world. And that's the introduction of philosophy. But there's a real temptation when you say, let's just say, go to college, to then look back on your common life and judge yourself as superior to it. Oh, they're so stupid. They're so backwater. They don't know how the world works. They've never read Heidegger or Hegel. They're so dumb. And to then engage in a kind of philosophical resentment and then from that place of philosophical resentment is very tempting to have, think, I have an idea of how the world should work, and then to conform the world to that vision. Well, now this is the this is bad philosophy. So you have no philosophy, and then you have a bad philosophy. That for David Hume is pure critique. It becomes pure deconstruction, and it falls into stuff like you could say the vision of anointed by Thomas Sowell. You could talk the, uh, you could think like a Paul Johnson, maybe a Julian Berenda, the tyranny of the intellectual and philosophy, where you're going to conform the world to your ideas. And that tends to be um, the 20th century uh, and all the totalitarian movements ideology. For David Hume, what you must do is return to a, not necessarily where you grew up, but a common life. And that's a place where you commit yourself and you use philosophy in service of the common life or the community, not just, just sit back and critique it. You have to use it as a defense of the community. Use philosophy to choose. Maybe you go, let's say you start off in Rustburg, Virginia. Um, you go off to college, you read all the books, and then you find communities. Let's just say the liminal web, although I know you could say, well, it's digital. It's not a real community. That all aside, that all aside. You say, well, I'm going to commit to whatever this project is of the liminal web, and I'm not going to use philosophy to just sit around and see all the problems with it. I'm going to use philosophy to defend the liminal web and to help improve it and to actually take a risk. Maybe the liminal web is a waste of time. Maybe it's not going to amount to anything, but you commit yourself to the risk. And so the order to keep critique from going too far in the direction of just becoming a source of tyranny and destruction, where you reduce the world to ideas, you ultimately have to embed yourself as part of the thing you're critiquing. This is the key. There's no philosophy, ergo no ability to critique, and that's where you get into banality of evil. Then there's going to philosophy where you critique things you are not part of, basically, and then there's moving to the place where you critique what you are part of, and in fact, you're part of it to be a better critique because you can't figure out what the community actually needs or does unless you're part of it. Like in a Heikian sense, you know, Friedrich Hayek pointed out that 
it doesn't matter how smart you are. If you don't work at the McDonald's down the road, you don't know how many plastic forks they need to order next week, right? You can have 10 PhDs and unless you work there, you're not going to know, right? So likewise, you can only have valid constructive critique from a participation. And David Hume basically warns that the temptation of the philosopher and being so smart or whatever and seeing the universal structure is to never embed themselves in something they participate in and use their critique against that thing of which their very participation in it will limit it from being totally auto cannibalistic because they eat themselves in that right so that that embedded that participation becomes a necessary component of philosophy to keep it from being um self-destructive and devouring everything uh that reminds me of something I find a lot in the work of Gurdjieff, who I'm very mm. fond of, because in the mythological framework he sets up in Beelzebub's Tales to his grandson, there's like a backstory to the human civilization. And in the backstory, um, angels and celestial beings who are created in a state of high spirituality are continually botching the situation. They're constantly doing something very well-meaning, very wise, but actually screwing up the condition for the beings on the earth because they're unable to actually appreciate the circumstance. They have no skin in the game and they don't have the requisite embedded data to make the decisions. You would need spiritually developed human beings. Even the angels mess it up because they're not from here. They don't know what it means to be an earthling. <laughs> that is amazing. I have not heard that story. The I, you know, it makes me think of there's this idea that the, you know, there's some mystical traditions in Abrahamic religions where man is co-creating with God. Like, you know, there's a co-creation. The angels don't get to co-create because you have to have bodies to co-create. Uh, if you're just a mind without a body, like Aquinas will talk about angels, then you don't get to co-create. It actually requires the kind of physicality in the body to co-create with God. That's a wonderful narrative. You know, this book, um, it, it contains a lot of concern for the importance of process and the problem of, of people who assume that a pro-process stance is equivalent to a particular moral position, as if taking the time to adjudicate is the same as taking a side for or against. In particular, the feeling that process might be a stand taken against the emotional imperative for justice that's immediately arriving in the passions of the public. And with that in mind, I'm curious how you think of systems like spiral dynamics and integral theory and Hanzi's metamodernism, the Utah model, where there's a stack of emergent cognitive faculties, because I think those models agree with this concern, but they describe it in a certain way, right? They would say these people are insufficiently cognitively developed. They haven't cultivated a more complex dynamic world mapping. They can't value process because in a sense, they can't even actually see it. They haven't unfolded themselves into the kind of a balance that would allow longer ranges of sense-making in a fundamentally dynamic map of reality. So all they can do is hold a static and immediate position. Does that kind of developmentalist description resonate with you, or do you feel like there's something insufficient or worrying about that kind of description? Well, that is a magnificent question. And I know we could touch on, say, the expertise of the magnificent Zach Stein on personality. And there's a lot of variants in the field on personality development. There's some people that think it's witchcraft. There's some people think it's a useful model. And, you know, it, it's all quite tricky. I think so. There's a few things. So first off, if we lose process because engaging in process equals taking a stance basically would then ai replaces us because the process the particular human process is going to be completely paramount when it comes moving forward uh we're going to have to decide just as a note i'm always curious in heidegger and the difference between wine and lumber or the wine and the river wine he talks about wine as like being coming forth but then there are other technologies that reduces everything to standing reserve 
Um, for Heidegger, let's say you have two bottles of wine that taste exactly the same. They have the same look. They're 100% different, but one of them comes off of a conveyor belt. The other one was made by a craftsman. The question is the following. Is there a difference? That's what we're going to have to decide. We're going to have to decide that there actually is a difference because the process itself, even though the result is completely the same, the process somehow changes the quality of the phenomenon. And we'll have to choose that. We'll have to choose that interpretive framework. If we cannot do this or don't think it's a worthy undertaking to make that choice, then it's going to be very difficult for us to defend humanity because humanity is going to be much more the, the, the particular process of the human process versus the artificial intelligence process is going to get um a lot of importance now it's a different topic but i but i think process is a big deal here and if we're anti-process we're in trouble um on spiral dynamics and different things i think it is i think it is quite clear that there are different personalities that can handle difference diversity paradox better than other people it's quite clear that if you want to fix the uh electron the um if you want to fix housing down in uh, new orleans after katrina you might not want a bunch of greens you might want some blues right uh, or whatever the colors is i get confused honestly between the integral colors and the spiral colors so if i get it all wrong just smile and nod and have pity on me uh, so you, there are certain personality types that you want for different things. You would not want a blue trying to deal with some of the deep tensions and trade-offs of pluralism, right? But you also know that a green would sit around and talk about the ideas and never necessarily implement them, right? But the very fact there is that difference suggests there are personality difference. Now, I'm also, I know that people make distinctions between personality developments, like there's all these different distinctions um, that I will not have the nuance to be able to maintain. So forgive me in my uh, linguistical sloppiness, but it's quite clear that people are, dare I say, different and they're good at different things. And not only are they different in say preference, but literally in the very way they understand and interpret the world. That's the key. We know from Marshall McLuhan and William Ong that literally people change the very horizon by which they experience. So we know that's the case, like humanity after the invention of the internet literally thinks differently than say um before the invention of the internet so right there we have evidence that the very horizon to use that kind of heideggerian gottimer sense changes relative like to different personality here's the here's the question i almost would i would almost want to emphasize material condition as what changes human personality than say almost anything else like i i would posit for example there's probably a lot more green after the internet than before the internet uh i would posit that there's probably a lot more people dealing with paradox in first world nations than in third world nations i do wonder sometimes though i don't actually know if anyone would disagree i'm not saying that the spiral community doesn't think this i'm not saying that anyone doesn't think what i'm saying i sometimes wonder if it's almost more like a cone then it is a spiral in the sense you have a new material condition that is introduced that introduces a new kind of horizon and as that material condition spreads it kind of goes out and then then there is something to be said that people who become green using the internet then goes into their relations and actually introduces people to that horizon that may maybe eight people say you're a madman but two of the people then change so you can have from that material condition a spreading to people's individual relations without that material condition because of the training from that material condition that then spread. So it's not a like you have to use the Internet to be green. You could just meet people that are green or something and that would change your rights. Oh, maybe it's cool now. I can't I you know, I don't have it. So it depends. Uh, so I would definitely say that the emphasis. So, for example, if indeed we want to argue that there is something about the ability to handle contradiction and paradox than human beings need to deal with pluralism and globalization, then my emphasis would be, well, we better spread the internet. 
uh, we better spread a material condition and then make sure or encourage people to use the internet in a way that introduces them to difference rather than go into conspiracy. But of course, that's a problem because people use, say, you know, the internet to go into QAnon, right? So it's actually the other thing I would say is I do wonder sometimes if in the cone dynamics I'm describing that the emergence of, say, coral which is trained from a material condition as possible because of the previous personalities and material condition on which it is built on, if that doesn't generate almost its opposite in its very generation, uh, which maybe is blue or something, because then people are like using the technology instead of becoming green to become like hard blue or something. Uh, so I wonder if there is a bit of that Hegelian, dare I say, dialectic uh, that kind of goes on in the spiral dynamic structure or the, uh, the integral structure. But I would say the model is valid, although I might, and everyone in the communities may agree with everything that I'm saying, and um, is that I might put emphasis on the material condition. And that would then make you say, okay, well, if we believe people today need a kind of heightened consciousness to deal with difference, then how do we fund it? How do we build kinds of economic models where people can go to work that helps them be green as opposed to blue versus say, oh, well, if they just get the right material and read Whitehead and Burks and they'll be green. Probably not, because most people probably won't understand what those texts are saying. And even if you understand what those texts are saying, you're probably not going to change your daily life after reading those texts. In order to really change your daily life and to have like a live new conscious horizon, it's going to have to be part of your everyday. Well, then this is well, now we're talking real wisdom, Lacanian wisdom. Now, how do you create the material conditions to help people have a kind of consciousness that is closer to, say, absolute knowing or Nietzschean children. So I would put the emphasis on following the material condition um, as opposed to, um, and again, I'm not saying that people like Zach Stein or whatever doesn't say that. Um, I'm just saying that that would be what I would want to emphasize. That's why for me, the address has to get so much into like economics, family, sex, all of these different things. Yeah, that puts me in mind of what I perceive as sort of the general moral positions of belonging again, right? And one is, I think, to put the emphasis on the material conditions. One is to take a stand for process. And one is to, um, I think it says, to honor convictions that are born from deeper contemplation mm. rather than shallower contemplation, that there's a need to make depth and contemplation more socially normative. Yes. But from your point of view, what's the key to good contemplation? What is your sense of the adequate process of pondering, the, the methodology that grants access to more trustworthy convictions? How would you teach contemplation? That's, a, that's an excellent question. So I was speaking with Hunter Coates the other day, and most people, if I were to ask them, hey, would you run down the street in your underwear for $500? Most people would go, yeah, absolutely, I would do that. And then I'd pull out the $500. We'll go then. Make it happen. Suddenly, they're not so eager. Suddenly, they're like, oh, well, maybe tomorrow or something. So the key for better contemplation is that you're going to do what you contemplate. The moment you say, whatever I contemplate, whatever I say I believe, will have to then be tested by how I live my life, how I make decisions, and I will have to take a risk. If you knew that whatever, so for example, if you knew that whatever you thought you would have to live, you might think a bit harder. If you thought, for example, that you would have to take responsibility for something, you would really think it through. So, for example, let's say that you go, well, I think it's immoral for, uh, you know, let's say you go global warming and you say fossil fuels are bad and they're destroying the planet and so on and so forth. And you, you're really, really adamant about that. Do everything in your power to imagine you sitting down, writing the law and then facing the cold miners who lost their job because you wrote that law. How would you respond to them? 
Would you be able to explain your position without them then creating a group that does pitchforks on Washington, D.C. or something like that? Could you stop fossil fuels to save the planet, which is arguably a very moral goal, but could you do it in a way that would not have an unintentional backlash? Or have you thought about how you would manage the backlash? Have you thought about the nature of the backlash and the process that you would go about to end fossil fuels? Or have you simply thought that fossil fuels needs to end and not thought about you as a subject signing the law that dooms millions of people to being unemployed and then having to face those millions of people? If you thought about that situation, your contemplation would go way, way, way deeper. The reason it would go way deeper is because you wouldn't simply be asking, is global warming true or not, which is a question that is worth asking because then that organizes the values. You would then go to the next step. How would I handle being the one who writes the law and puts my name on the law? How would I be the one to deal with the subjects who then had to live in the world where they don't have a job? Well, I still have a job because I didn't work at the coal mines because, of course, I didn't. I think global warming is a problem, right? So I don't have to face that difficulty of a subject. We are not going to be capable of very competent contemplation unless we bring it to the real per se, the Lacanian real, where we're the one who's implementing that philosophical project and we're facing the people who suffer because of that philosophical project. If we don't seriously think that, then the level of contemplation we have will not be very useful. It will probably just be, you know, we may not be QAnon, QAnon but people on the liminal web may just basically be existing in a network of thoughts that are self-serving, just like a conspiracy. It's so easy to look at different conspiracies and say those people are on their own like Pizzagate bubble or different things. Well, everyone is at risk. Every human being is conspiratorial because the nature of thought is to find a coherence that is its own satisfaction, even if it does not correspond. That's the nature of thought. Thought doesn't care if it corresponds. Thought, thought is almost like the C.S. Pierce stuff, right? Where it's like the point of belief is to not feel uncomfortable. It doesn't, the, the function of belief is not so much to correspond. We tell ourselves it's to correspond because if we didn't think that it would itch, as he describes in the ethics of belief, but primarily what we want is coherence. We are all incredibly susceptible to thinking ideas that are coherent, but they're not corresponding. So we have to put mechanisms in place to keep that happening. And people in QAnon are just as much as a risk of that as is a Republican, as is a Democrat, as is an environmentalist, as is the liminal web. So to check and balance that, one has to very, 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 very seriously imagine themselves in the situation of facing the real of their thoughts. Yeah, that came up for me reading this. Like I was thinking about culturopathies, you know, regressive interpersonal breakdown, cultic behavior. Uh, I mean, there's healthy cults. I like cults, units of culture, but there's cultic families, cultic nations, cultic churches, corporations, etc. And one of the major problems we see in degenerative cultic behavior is the president presence of an overly coherent ideology that seems to remain consistent in the face of any challenge. No matter what happens, it fits the ideological narrative. There's no direct escape. You can't reason your way out. You can't get out through exposure to alternative facts and perspectives. But how much of that problem is the lack of skill, lack of training, lack of ability to experience the contradiction? like both in extreme cultic situations and the general population and in normal education and family situations, are we failing to help people recognize cognitive dissonance and want to feel into it rather than bypass it and return to a mental sense-making scheme? 
Excellent. Um, I think this gets into the art of indirectness, the art of sensitivity, and so on and so forth. So let's take an example of someone who's in QAnon, because that's a, just a clear example, but it would apply just as much to any cult, community, ideology, worldview, et cetera, so forth. If you go up to someone in QAnon and say, how can you possibly believe this? They're probably going to say, well, if you were in my shoes, you would. You haven't done the work. That's always what happens. People are like, well, you haven't researched, you haven't seen what I've happened, and you haven't. You haven't. So there's a plausible deniability that they can always use, right? Um, the third, the second book of the Truths of the Rational is called The Map is Indestructible, which is kind of tracing out the contours of ideological maps and why they are relative to themselves indestructible. There is no necessary reason any worldview has to be undermined. You can always find a reason why that incompleteness is essential. So for, so for example, in Christianity, you go, why haven't I ever seen God? Well, because if you so, saw God, he would kill you. Maybe that's true, maybe that's not, but you notice you can always come up with a reason for why things are the case. And basically, whatever worldviews, whether it be conservatism, Hinduism, whatever, the ones that tend to survive the mean natural selection, like mean natural selection, are the ones that tend to be most able to maintain their own essential um, um, the internal consistency. Uh, we talk it as the problem of in internally consistent systems. Like once you have like, internally consistent systems, how do you get people to move out of them once they're trapped into it, right? Well, if rationality is always able to be put in service of maintaining coherence, and I will note that after Girdle, the incompleteness there, we have to choose between correspondence and coherence. You can't have both. That's basically what it comes out to. If you have a mathematical set that is completely coherent, that very coherence makes it impossible to determine that it corresponds. But if you find out it corresponds, that means it's not coherent because the very correspondent takes it out of the coherent set. So there's always a trade-off here. So the question is the following. How do you make, you cannot use rationality to move someone out of a map, if you give me that language. You have to get them themselves to move themselves out of the map, for example. So I have a good friend. Uh, his name is Lorenzo. He's magnificent. The things that he'll do to help people move out of conspiracies is use probability markets. So for example, I come up to you and say, Hey, do you think the world, you know, do you think that uh, QAnon is true? And they say, absolutely. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, I've got a probability market here. And if it turns out to be the case that Trump doesn't win the election, all you have to do is put down $100 and you'll actually make $5,000. Um, so why don't you go right ahead? Funny enough that when you make people put skin in the game, you're not saying they're wrong. You're saying if you are right, which you think you are, I'm giving you an opportunity to profit off of your rightness. And suddenly people start thinking, they go, uh, well, I don't know, maybe it could be different. Ah, so the question is, how do you create mechanisms of skin in the game? Not where you're telling people they're wrong, but you make people take a stand for what they believe. That's what we're saying. Like one of the problems that's happening is we're not actually forcing ourselves into places where we take a stand for what we believe or imagine ourselves writing the law that we want to pass, right? So what is all of that? Forcing us to encounter the real of our beliefs. So how do you create me mechanisms to help people say in conspiracies, cults and whatever and so forth, undergo the real of what they believe in a manner that would profit them. Now, there's risks here because you have to have the skill and the discernment to figure out what those might be. Um, because if you just simply say, oh, well, you know, if you think that Trump is going to win, um, you know, the presidency or something with the storm and all that, why don't you drive up to Washington, D.C.? Well, they may drive up to Washington, D.C. and, you know, nothing happens and they'll just say, oh, that's because it's going to happen later. That's not a good example of skin in the game. Skin in the game tends to involve things like money or things that will... Things that will cost people, but there is an asymmetrical gain if they do it. That's the key with the probability markets. If you say 100 bucks, you could make 10,000. 
That's different to saying 100 bucks, 200, right? You need to really make it seem radically silly not to take the bet, right? So how do you create asymmetrical um, opportunities for people to stand for what they believe, that they'd be irrational not to do, which will then make them think, do I really believe what I think? So we have to think in that sense creatively, if you will. Um, I do think there are mechanisms of doing that actually in lots of different fields, but that's one example of how what you're doing is you're not trying to show someone that QAnon is ridiculous. You're giving them an opportunity to benefit from if QAnon is true, but it comes with a slight bit of risk. Of course it does. You know, the only way to, to profit is you have to take some risk. Um, and that causes a different kind of reflection because what have you done there? You've introduced a non-rational variable into the equation. At the beginning, we were saying that rationality requires ultimately reliance and organization relative to a non-rationality. So what you have done is forced a person to not look at all the evidence that their Thomas Pitchin novel, Crying Lot 49 is correct or something, you know, QAnon, you have forced them to introduce a non-rational variable that they would be crazy not to take because they could make so much money. So those are the kind of things we have to think and engage in. But at least if you understand that rationality is never going to be the name of the game because it can always find its own methods of coherence, then you're now thinking of the right way to go about this problem, which is forcing skin in the game efforts of uh, correspondence. Yeah, it's fascinating within certain frameworks, negotiation that has something at stake can do something like reveal the real. You know, when you were talking about, I'll give you $500 to run naked down the street, and you say, okay, now here's the $500. And then I go, well, maybe it'll take an extra 200 <laughs> right? I can always put a price on the real under those yes. conditions. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. And then I might do that in hopes that you're not willing to do 700. I'd be like, well, I'll do it for 700. And you go, oh, well, actually, no, I'm not going to pay you 700. Oh, good. Now I don't have to confront the real. So there's that exactly the negotiation has the real coming out. Um, what else did I like about this book? Okay, let's say there's a trust crisis. How much of the trust crisis comes from betrayal, from things we trusted that failed us? How much comes from a lack of the physical preconditions for trust? Like maybe you literally can't trust without proper blood glucose ratios in your brain. And how much emerges from the mistaken idea that we can extract trust from mere facts rather than from making a gamble of faith? Is the trust crisis mostly rooted in personal emotional experience, in material conditions, or in an intellectual mistake about the nature of trust? That's a, another excellent question, Mr. Landon Pascal. <laughs> oh, I'm very impressed. Uh, so you, you, you're just, it's just marvelous. Um, I think trust, um, you know, Francis Fukuyama has that book where he basically says society is trust. So if we don't know what trust is, we're kind of in huge trouble. Now, he's not saying it's just trust, but trust is like, if I can't go outside and know I'm not going to be mugged, I'm probably not going to go outside. And I'm probably not even going to try to start a business because someone will like uh, burn it down or something, right? So, you know, trust is a really big deal. One of the most mistaken notions about trust is that trust can be earned. Trust cannot be earned because if it is, it's a power dynamic. You have to do the thing that gains my trust. And I decide when you've earned it or when you've not, right? Trust is either given or it is withdrawn but it is not earned. In a sense, it's earned in that you've never punched me in the face. But the key is that trust has to be given or not, or there's a power dynamic. The problem is when people have been wounded and people have been wounded, possibly and often by the very givens that we're saying that people need for belonging because they've oppressed them and now they have to get belonging again in a different way, then people feel like desiring for trust to be earned is rational because I was hurt, but maybe if I can make people earn the trust, then there's a less chance I'll be hurt. 
So when people have their trust violated, they tend to fall back on trust needs to be earned, which is a rational model that then makes it basically impossible for trust to be created in a manner that doesn't feel like a power dynamic. Like I'm just serving you and trying to make you happy and you're never happy and then there's a bitterness and that tends to blow up, right? We have to understand that even if we have been wounded, we cannot fall back on a model of trust that's an earning. We either have to choose to give it or not. Maybe we say, I'm not ready to trust again, and we withdraw, and we take some time in alone. Maybe we go heal some wounds. Maybe we go through therapy, whatever we need to do. But we cannot make trust something that we put on the other to earn for us because that creates a very problematic social dynamic that is not sustainable. We have to think of trust as something we give or not. And once we give it, that's the non-rational leap of faith. That's the risk that we're talking about. Right now, we're trying to be rational about trust. We're trying to be rational about legitimacy. We're trying to be rational about when we can trust our experts in different things, which we, by the way, have very good reason not to trust because experts have taken advantage of us, right? So we want experts to regain our trust. They can't. They can't. How many PhDs can an expert get? What? what how many um, studies can they do to prove to us that we should trust the experts or not? There's nothing they can do. We either choose to trust the experts, which means we're vulnerable or not which now maybe that means we become very intentional about creating systems that better create mechanisms of testing. But that's different from saying you have to do something to regain my trust. I say, okay, I'm, I think the mechanism of the past was too prone to lead to manipulation. So let's create a new way to do college. Let's create a new site where you've got the replication crisis in science, right? Okay, well, that's that goes to show the peer review process clearly doesn't work, right? Okay, we need a new peer review process. So what are you doing? You're locating the problem in the reforming of the system or the material condition or what have you, as opposed to something that doesn't fix that at all, which is make the experts earn my trust. They never will. They never will. And then maybe there's good reason not to give them trust because you've taken, they've taken advantage of you. Well, that means the, uh, that means the initiative has to be on the systems level. That means it has to be in the occupational. You have to change the peer review process, which maybe we should. But here's the point. If we do not have the right understanding of what trust is, then the likelihood that we will rightly make a quality decision on what we need to do and what we need to reform goes down because we may spend another 70 years trying to get the experts to earn our trust in a system that wounds us and therefore won't. So understanding that trust is either given or not, it isn't earned, then makes us more discerning about the processes that we need to rethink, reform, or transform. So I actually, so I actually think it's really important to understand that trust is always a risk. It is always non-rational, but that doesn't mean it has to be stupid in the sense that you keep engaging with the thing that's taken advantage of you, but it does mean that you have to think about changing the process. Have you considered growing a beard? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mr. Layman Pascal, I will say this, my facial hair grows so fast, like every night I have to shave. So I don't have to think about growing a beard. It will happen if I lose a razor blade for three days. Michelle will confirm this and the chids will too. Like the read the other day was like, daddy, hairy. I was like, thanks, Reed. It's so great. So it doesn't take but three days. No, I have a similar answer. People are like, oh, are you growing a beard? I'm like, I'm not shaving. I mean, that's... <laughs> um, what else? Uh, do you actually think movies encourage fascism by absorbing people into unbounded narratives that cause individual brains to practice releasing themselves from normative social constraints? Or is that just a delightful idea? <laughs> you know, Mr. Thomas Jockin in the review was like, Daniel, I think you might want to expand on that one. So, uh, you know, Mr. Jockin in his review was like, I really hope in the address he might expand on that a little bit. That's really funny. That's an example. I do think movies 
create a familiarity with a dream psychology that tends to be found in group dynamics that is released. So there's a parallel between the structure of movies being like dreams, dreams being the dynamic that comes out in group dynamics, as Eric Job talks about, and therefore actually those things can kind of train together, which would actually, for me, I actually do think honestly, is that knowing what story is, and I'm gonna go on a limb and say we don't know what story is anymore, which of course is opening a can of worms, but Mr. Um, Andrew Luber and Alex have done a lot of work on what story is. They had a wonderful talk at the Meaning Code, and I agree. I think we actually don't know what story is because we don't know what theme is. We think theme is moral. Um, by not having a proper understanding of story or having entertainment that brings forth story, which would have more of a mythic structure, we are in fact more prone to falling into group dynamics because we are not actually um, imbued uh, mythic structures that we need to avoid that. So movies don't have to lead to fascism, but they may currently. <laughs> okay, I think we're probably at this point at risk of overloading the minds of any listeners or viewers. So uh, one final question. Um, it's been said that if God doesn't exist, anything is permitted. The supreme constraint is lost. But it's also been said that if God exists, everything is permitted because those who believe in an absolute truth give themselves permission to override everyone else and ignore any real conditions that are below the supreme constraint. So when we're considering the loss of constraining, restraining givens, is this problem more likely to arise from libertines or from the zealous advocates of good behavior who serve an absolute? Oh, that's lovely. Um, so right now, it seems, unfortunately, you have, you know, a lot of people keep talking about wokeism or different things where you have kind of liberally, and then there's a reaction of the fascism against that. But then it's the difference between mob and mass. That's what you tend to say, like the book talks about mob and mass, like the mass is more of the kind of Nazi Germany where the mob is the French Revolution or different things. And I think it's really important to realize they're not sociologically the same. Because if you say, oh, it's just the mob, there, there's different qualities of these group gatherings or different things. So right now, what tends to happen is the mob and the mass tend to come up together uh, because they're in response to one another. So the, the hard etiquette get back to good behavior tends to arise precisely in response to the one who realizes the good behavior was a norm that oppressed minorities. Um, right now, if I were to say which is worse versus the other, um, I'm going to be really lame and say I'm not sure. And the reason I'm not sure is because the mass. So, for example, the mass is invisible. Usually what ends up happening is the mass is invisible. But when they show up, they're massive. Like, I think 2016 is a great example of this, like invisible. No one supports Trump. Bam. Brexit. Bam. Popularism. The mob tends to not be so centralized, actually. But they seem more like big. They're like very visible, like woke is all it's all over college campuses and different things. Well, I don't, I don't tend to run into woke when I go to McDonald's, but I did, I do tend to run into popularism. So the mass tends to be less visible, but bigger. And so if the mass becomes a problem, you're in massive problem where woke is a problem because it stimulates the mass. So you could say ultimately the mass is the biggest problem, but it tends to be fueled by um, the mob. So that's where it's kind of back and forth for me to close on that tension between, you know, I guess, uh, Sartre and Dostoevsky or something, uh, is that really this is where if we say that, you know, if God exists, everything is permitted. If God doesn't exist, everything is permitted. What would it mean to say everything if God is a situation as opposed to a thing, like I think Matt at, uh, with, with Whitehead and these different people are saying that that means everyone or it's the absolute idealism of Hegel. And you could even have, you know, if we want to have a, a Christian bias, you can say, well, God is the Trinity invites all of creation to co-create with them. Well, then everything is permitted in so much as I love my neighbor. 
Everything is permitted in so much as I learn to relate and have a relation with the other of whom is made in the image and likeness of God just as much as I am. So everything, you know, the individual that says, oh, is everything permitted or not for the individual? Um, that's already a problematic framing because you're identifying individual or things, which Owen Barfield warned is a kind of idolatry. There are no things, only relations and situations. The moment you say that things exist, and the, then you're saying that things are their own grounding, and therefore you've entered idolatry. So from an so from to close from an ontology that's idolatrous, neither one of those answers would work because you have an idolatrous ontology. But if you have an ontology that is more relational and says that reality is a situation. And you also say that God uh, invites participation in creation, then everything is impossible in so much as we learn to relate with one another. But the moment you talk about relation, that means you encounter the real of Lacan. So everything is possible if we can learn to deal with the real, which is our challenge now. And the question is if we will rise to this occasion or not. Fantastic. Thank you very much for this. It's been very stimulating. And anybody who's listening or watching the book Belonging Again is a it's a rich mine of provocations. There's a, there's an idea worth thinking about in every paragraph. That's very kind, Layman Pascal. Well, I have really enjoyed this. This has been a delight. Thank you for the opportunity. It's it's truly been a treat.